Let's open up to Genesis chapter 32. And while you're finding it, I want to tell you about a problem that I once had. About 10 years ago, I discovered that I had a security idol. I used to be so obsessed with locking doors, and sometimes in the middle of the night, I would have to get up and go check to make sure that they were secure. And at the time, I was living with some friends um, in a house, and my friends loved to mess with me about this. Don't you just love it when your friends discover one of your insecurities, and they like to just drive right into it, laughing all the way. Um, While they're laughing, though, I'm getting flustered, and I'm getting angry, and what God was actually doing was revealing that what I thought I was doing in prudence and wisdom, I was actually driven by self-dependence. About this time, I was also in a discipleship group of a few guys. Uh, A few of these guys also were the friends that were messing with me. Um, But I was in this group, and I was talking in this group about how my friends were being jerks about this issue. And my, the leader of this group named Brian, he decided not to just brush it off, but to press into it even further, which I loved. But what he was saying is that he had the wisdom to see that what I thought was done in wisdom, my obsession with locking doors and windows, he asked me, was that rooted in trusting God or was that rooted in trust in self? And what I was finding was more security in my own abilities rather than God's hand to protect. And what he wasn't saying is, you know, he wasn't saying don't take proper security measures. But what we found out as uh, they dug into my heart a little bit is that I had an idol in my heart that was preventing me from living in the freedom and the confidence of God's hand and guidance to protect me. This is Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. So if you're there, open up in um, God's Word. I'm going to read from verses 22 to 32, if you'll follow along. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Let's pray together and ask God to bless our time. Father in heaven, it is only by your spirit that we can understand and apply anything from your word. Lord, we ask that you would guide this time, this morning, and guide us into a deeper joy that comes from fellowship with you 
through Christ our Savior. Be honored as we listen and as we submit to your word this morning. And please help me, your servant, in great need of your grace, um, confessing my own inadequacies apart from your sovereign mercy. Help me to explain it clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In some cases, names in the Bible have incredible significance. Uh, They reflect nature and uh, identity. And when a name is changed, it is particularly significant. If you think about Abram to Abraham, Abraham means father of many. Or if you think of Simon to Peter, Jesus changed his name, representing that Peter was the rock, which is what Peter, ne- Peter means. Jesus, Peter was the rock upon whom Jesus would build his church. In, this, in these examples, we see that not only names could be significant, but changing of names could be even more significant, meaning that God was doing something. He was uh, indicating a new status, a new calling. So such is the case with Jacob, who in this passage, God renames Israel. Jacob means trickster or deceiver, and Israel means strives with God. And another theme we see in Scripture is that God often sanctifies by testing. So in 1 Peter 1, 7, um, we see that. Joel preached on that a couple of weeks ago. God sovereignly uses our suffering to produce within us perseverance, character, and hope. That's from Romans 5, which we looked at a few months ago. But Jesus says in John 15 that he prunes his kingdom people for his kingdom purposes. And what we find out is that often pruning hurts. Again, such is the case with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. This is one of those passages, maybe you're reading along, you've kicked off your New Year's Bible reading plan, you're in Genesis, you're enjoying the vivid narrative of just these major monumental moments um, in redemptive history. You get the creation account, the flood, you get the Tower of Babel, the covenant with Abraham, the almost sacrifice of Isaac, and then wham, a mysterious figure comes out of the dark and wrestles with Jacob. What's going on here? The scene finishes almost as quickly as it begins, only 10 verses long. But what I'd like to do is argue that this is also a monumental moment in redemptive history. Because up until this point, Jacob had been far from the covenantal hero that we consider him to be now. He was a deceiver, a trickster. He was a a heel-grabbing younger brother with wavering faith and a mixed dependence on the Lord. But let's not be too hard on him. Don't get me wrong. Uh, In the preceding chapters, if you read them, uh, we see that God had been working on him. He had actually experienced some good character transformation, some real growth. But in chapter 32, it all comes to a head. Genesis 32 had to happen because Jacob's character needed pruning and his heart needed transformation. And here it's that God shows us that, that he will uphold his covenant to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob and all the way down the line to Christ, his own son. Because we see in this passage that if the messianic line is to be preserved, then God must wrestle and prune Jacob into the man he was becoming. Uh, he leaves Esau for the birthright. He deceives Isaac for the firstborn blessing, and Esau is so mad at him that he wants to kill him, so Jacob has to run for his life. And this, when Jacob is on the run from Esau, this is where God first appears to Jacob 
and reestablishes the Abrahamic covenant with him. And this is that Jacob's ladder dream experience in Genesis 28, if you want to look it up later. But this is what God says to Jacob. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have promised, until I have done what I have promised. That's an amazing promise. And up until recently, I didn't even get some of the, um, just kind of the, uh, the grandeur of this promise and the parallel with Abraham. So think about when God gives his uh, covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, uh, what is Abraham's response? You know it well. All it says there is, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's this same promise of being with him and blessing him wherever he will go. But when Jacob gets this promise, this is how he responds. If God will do this, then the Lord will be my God. Stark difference from Abraham. Abraham believed, it was counted to him as righteousness. Jacob says, okay, if you'll do this, then you'll be my God. What we come to realize is that Jacob's worship at this point was conditional. He was reserved. He wasn't ready to jump in with everything he had. And so when Jacob gets to his uncle's place, Laban, he gets a taste of his own deception, and he has to go back on the run. But his uncle catches up. God brings about reconciliation, and they can move forward. The Lord keeps appearing to Jacob at moments in his life, at key moments where you think that Jacob would learn to trust him. He keeps preserving his life. But no matter how much Jacob falls into self-reliance, God's purposes will prevail. Prevail. And so at the beginning of chapter 32, which is where our passage is, God sends an army of angels to be with Jacob, which is pretty amazing. And so with this potent awareness of God's presence, he's just gotten this promise, and the angels of the Lord protecting him, he gets a little bit courageous, and he sins for Esau, his brother who wanted to kill him, hoping that maybe God might have some reconciliation there too. Have you ever had good intentions, but then realized very quickly that you're way in over your head? You know, I think about maybe you're making a phone call. It's a hard phone call, but you know you need to make it. And so you dial it up and you hit send. And then all of a sudden you realize you have no idea what you're about to say, but you have five seconds to figure it out. This is, I think, a little bit of what Jacob starts to feel right now. He has this moment of courage where he's going to send to Esau so he can be reconciled with his brother, and then all of a sudden it's happening, and he starts freaking out. He's experienced the grace of God, but when he hears that Esau is headed his way with 400 men, he shudders in fear. The last time he heard from his brother, Esau was ready to kill him. You might think an army of angels would be enough backup to continue on with confidence. He has this moment of desperation and what appears to be trusting in the Lord, and he cries out and he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me. But you said, I will surely do good to you and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. And if Jacob had really been listening to the Lord here, I think he probably would have heard something like, I got this. Haven't I been telling you all along that I am with you? Do not fear. 
Again, when I read through this narrative, it's hard not to feel for Jacob. He really seems like a good guy um, in our standards. But the problem is, and this is really profound, the problem is, is what Jacob is saying with his lips is not being backed up by his actions. And what that does is it realizes, or it, it expresses, that Jacob hasn't embraced it with his heart. See, Jacob wants a both-and situation. He wants, on one hand, he wants God to protect him, but, you know, just in case, he's going to hedge his bets on this side. He wants his cake, and he wants to eat it, too. It's good for us to reflect on. You know, what is our attitude towards God? Do we trust in his provision? Or is God mainly a backup plan for us if things go awry? Is God the first, the middle, and the last place that we run for help? And so even after such a beautifully dependent prayer, Jacob falls back into self-reliance. A.W. Pink explains it this way. He says, Jacob at once turns from the exercise of faith to unbelief, from prayer to scheming, from God to his own fleshly devices. And how does he do that? In fear, he tries to bribe Esau again, which he's done once, and he bribes him with, tries to bribe him with 550 animals to earn favor in his sight because he is terrified to see his brother again. So this, this is the context. This brings us up to verse 22. And so you can continue to follow along um, starting in verse 22. What we're going to see with point one on the bulletin is that God is positioning Jacob for transformation. So now he arose in that same night and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children across the, board, the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across a stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. So he's using his family and his servants as sort of a human shield, and he isolates himself in fear. Regardless of what Jacob has just said in his prayer, his actions reflect this wavering dependence upon God and self. But the Lord cannot be bought with the words of a flowery prayer. What God wants is the whole heart. He doesn't want partial dependence. In fact, sometimes God doesn't even want our words at all. Sometimes what God wants is the stillness and the quietness of a heart that simply loves and trusts in him. If you think about it, what did the Israelites do to the Egyptians except run away? And God took care of it. And we get this small tidbit from Moses um, when he says to the people, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be what? Silent. So this is a reflection for us. How are you trusting in the Lord to deliver you from your fears? This morning, that situation that is all consuming your every thought, that thing that is crippling you with fear, how can you simply and quietly trust in the Lord to fight for you? And so, in this narrative, God must bring this wavering to an end if Jacob is going to be the man that he he needs to be. And what he's doing is he proves Jacob's self sufficiency to be totally insufficient. So Jacob's finally alone. He's finally at the end of himself, which is exactly where God wants him, positioned for transformation. 
Jacob's got nothing left to lean on. He's alone. He's nothing left to lean on but God himself. And a man wrestles with him until daybreak. Verse 24. A man wrestled with him until daybreak, and he saw that he had not prevailed against him. He touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Who is this mysterious man? Some have suggested that this isn't a physical experience at all. Some have suggested that this is just kind of Jacob wrestling with himself in this battle of the mind as he's preparing to face Esau, his biggest fear. But if, as we keep reading, I think the fact that he's physically injured from this experience is pretty clear evidence against this. And there's no doubt in Jacob's mind who he's wrestling. Because if you see in verse 30, he says it explicitly. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. And at the end of this match, he recognizes that I haven't saved my own life. It has been preserved for me. And so he names the place Peniel, which means literally in the Hebrew, face of God. So what we have here in Genesis 32, this is an example of prepare yourself, brace yourself for a big word, theophany. I've defined it on your bulletin. You don't have to worry about remembering it, but you can learn it as you reread this. Um, In your bulletin, theophany. This is what we see here in chapter 32. A theophany, as this dictionary says, is an appearance or manifestation of God in temporary forms perceptible to the external senses. So in regular human speak, uh, a theophany is when the invisible God makes himself visible to man for a very clear purpose. And it only happens at big covenantal moments in redemptive history. But it happens in a variety of ways. You think about Genesis 15. uh, In the covenant ceremony with Abraham, God appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Or Genesis 18, three men appear to Abraham. And we come to find out later in the narrative that these three men are actually two angels and the Lord himself. Or uh, Exodus 3 Moses in the burning bush as God speaks to him. Or as the Israelites are in the wilderness, they have the presence of God with them as fire by night and a cloud by day. This happens all over. But these theophanies were monumental milestones in redemptive history. When God had a point to make, he wanted to make it very clearly. Also in your bulletin, I've just put kind of just a simple way to express the purposes of theophanies. So why would God do this? Well, he wants to impress upon God's people in a very real and tangible way that he is with them, he is sovereign, he will deliver them, and he will lead them. So God is with them, he is sovereign, he will deliver them, and he will lead them. So it shouldn't really surprise us that God would appear to Jacob by way of theophany in this turning point in Jacob's life. Jacob's about to meet Esau, And he's wondering, is Esau going to slaughter him? Will will Jacob be saved? And if Jacob's going to be the leader that he's called to be, then his character must be pruned from the deceiver that he once was to the faith warrior that he is actually becoming. Um, Just as a side note, you can look at Hosea 12 later. That's more proof that this is a divine wrestling match. Um, Hosea describes the man in this exact experience as the angel 
And we see elsewhere in Scripture that God appears to his people, sometimes called as the angel of the Lord. And a few chapters later, you might see it in your Bible, the renaming of Jacob to Israel is reiterated by God explicitly. And in 2 Kings 17.34, we're told that the renaming came from the Lord. Okay, so this man is theophany of God wrestling with Jacob. Um, it's also notable here, you see that, you know, who initiates this wrestling match? What we see is that God initiates the wrestling with Jacob. Because what it's not about is it's not about the power of man to invoke blessing from God, but it's about God's insistence to bless his people. Again, A.W. Pink puts it this way. He says, God's intention here seems to be to reduce Jacob to a sense of his nothingness and to cause him to see what a poor and helpless creature he was. And for us, it's to teach us through Jacob the all-important lesson that in recognized weakness lies our strength. That's what Paul said. He said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So continuing on in verse 27, so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. God's patience um, is seen in allowing this wrestling match to go on all night. But when he was ready, upon simply touching his hip, he dislocates Jacob's hip. In reality, what we, what we know to be true is that Jacob only holds his own in this wrestling match because the Lord wills it. He only prevails. That's why I put prevailing in quotation marks in your outline. He only prevails because the Lord wills it. God is really the one in control here. But what is so beautiful about God's ways is that he steadily and patiently shepherds his sheep. It's kind of like uh, when I wrestle with my son, my three-year-old son, who will be four in just a couple of weeks. Uh, at any moment, I can end this match. At any moment, if I wanted to, I could just pin him down and it would be done. But I don't do that. It wouldn't be very much fun for either one of us if I did that. And so we toss and we turn. And I let him get me down for just a little bit, but then come back up at the last second. And sometimes I let him win and sometimes I get to win. But... But the point is, is that at any moment, I can win. There is no question who is stronger. But we continue because I love him. And I come down to his level because I want him to know that I am with him. And I want him to grow, and I want him to learn. And frankly, I just want to spend time with my son. And so in a similar way in this passage, God accommodates his strength to Jacob for the sake of what he's doing in Jacob's life. So what this is not is it's not a picture of Jacob fighting and holding his own and finally just coercing God to give him blessing. What this is is a loving God patiently and effectively forming Jacob into the man he was to become, into the patriarch of a nation named after him, Israel, Israel 
This is a corrective move from a loving father. But there's no question who's stronger. It's kind of like the, uh, the NFL player who played Gumby with Joel in high school. If you don't get that reference, go two weeks ago, listen to Joel's sermon on 1 Peter 1. There's no question who's stronger. See, Jacob only prevails in this wrestling match because God prevails in him to bring about covenantal blessing and a reminder of his presence with his people. Which brings us to the fourth point on your outline, remembering. The passage ends with a call to remember. Verse 31, Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew on the hip which is on the socket of his thigh, of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh with, on the sinew of the hip. So the Lord leaves this physical impression upon Jacob as he limps away, which proves this is no mere dream or illusion. God condescends to Jacob in a way that he would never forget. What he does is he leaves this external mark as evidence of an internal transformation. And as Moses writes this narrative, he gives us the side note that the nation of Israel commemorates this by observing this food restriction related to it. So in addition to Israel, the man, who had a physical reminder of his need to depend on the Lord, Israel, the nation, was given a tangible reminder as well. And as Scripture testifies, the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament is God's faithfulness, his relentless faithfulness in the midst of a people who is repetitively unfaithful to him. But this food custom would serve as an ongoing reminder of their need to depend on the Lord. You can already see a beautiful parallel um, as we think about Christ. Christ's body and blood broken for us and spilled for us is an amazing, tangible reminder of our need to depend on him. And at our church where we, we observe the Lord's table every week, we get a weekly reminder, which is just an amazing blessing. Um, that I think partially uh, points back to this um, experience um, of, of Jacob. So the call to return to the Lord and obey in his strength is a repeated refrain in Scripture. You think of uh, many of our favorite passages. I put a few of them on your outline. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Isaiah 41:10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Christ himself preaches, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do not fear, only believe. And Paul claims that in all he does, this is really cool, in all Paul's doing, the model missionary and disciple maker, church planter, Everything he does, he's struggling with Christ's energy that powerfully works within him. So here we are, the third week of Advent, and uh, we're opening up to the book of Genesis. And you say, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Well, in some ways, it has nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> in some ways, you know, this isn't one of the birth narratives. This isn't an Old Testament prophecy that points specifically to Christ, but... This passage, I'm going to argue, still finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. 
because Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of theophany. He's the ultimate appearance of God to man. If Christ did not come in the flesh, if he did not come in human form, if he did not live the life that we were supposed to live, if he did not die the death that we deserved, if he did not raise to life like we had no chance of doing on our own, then we are left with no hope. But all theophanies point to Christ. That's why I think that this is a powerful um, passage that points to Christ. Um, In a recent lecture, my professor at seminary taught us lesson number one for interpreting the Bible. This is really simple. We can all get it. Lesson number one for interpreting the Bible, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Christ is the center and the goal of the whole Bible. And that means not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. And in fact, if we look at the large grand scheme of things, Christ is actually the center and the goal of all of history. From the very beginning, God's purposes were to dwell with his people in holy communion. Christ makes it happen. Christ is the fulfillment of theophany. Jesus himself shows the disciples in Luke 24. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus is quite clear. It points to him. Or in 1 Peter 1.11, we're told that the spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophecies, prophets as they prophesied about Christ's suffering and glory. Or the book of Romans. We've been digging into the book of Romans this year and next year. Uh, Paul starts out this way. He says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Or, as Hebrew 1 puts it, Christ is the heir of all things. So it's all about Jesus. The centrality of Christ in all of Scripture and in all of history is a non-negotiable. To study the Old Testament without looking to Christ is actually to miss the point entirely. And so let's walk through the the purposes of theophany one by one. If we remember, what was the purpose of theophanies? It's on your outline if you want to review. But God is communicating to his people in a real and tangible way that he is with them, he is sovereign, he will deliver them, and he will lead them. This is what God communicates to Jacob, and this is what God communicates to you in Christ. Let's look at each one of them um, in turn. In Christ, God is saying, I am with you. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. In Christ, we see that God is sovereign. God is preserving his people so that one day, the seed who would crush the serpent's head would be born, Jesus Christ, his son. And not Laban, not Esau, not Pharaoh, not the Babylonians, um, not Herod, not even the religious leaders of Jesus' day could prevent Jesus from accomplishing the Father's will. So in Christ, we see that God is sovereign. In Christ, also the third, the third purpose of theophany, in Christ, we see that God will deliver us. This is a really cool parallel with this passage. Jacob is said to have striven with God and man and prevailed. Well, how does Christ fulfill and take it one step farther? Before Christ begins his public ministry, he wrestles with Satan in the desert, Luke chapter 4. And he prevails by the word of God. And Jesus' death on the cross robs Satan of all of his power over us. 
Christ strives with man in the sense that he preaches the kingdom of God, but he dodges every attempt of them to capture him until it was time for him to go to the cross. What is amazing is that no one could take Christ's life from him. He lays it down on his own accord. The Garden of Gethsemane could probably, in this light, be seen as a wrestling ring with Christ and the Father. Uh, He's alone. He's sweating drops of blood in utter anguish about what's about to take place. And Christ pleads with the Father, remove this cup from me. Yet, in the ultimate display of humility and sacrificial love, what does Christ do? He submits to the Father, saying, not my will, but your will be done. And so as God, would, as God struck Israel's hip, he would strike his own son. Because the glory of Christ would not come through self-exaltation, but it would come through suffering. Victory through submission. As Paul says, therefore, because of this, because this is the way Christ went about it in humility... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2. So not only um, do we see that God sustains the messianic line through Jacob, but through this event he foreshadows Christ's redemptive work in wrestling with Satan and prevailing, in wrestling with man and prevailing, and even wrestling with the Father and prevailing by submitting. And what he does is he secures this blessing for the elect. So the fourth reason of theophany um, is to show that God will lead them. So in Christ, God will always be with us because what did Christ do? He sent the Spirit to be with us. You know, sometimes we hear people say, if I could just see a sign, if I could just see something tangible, then I might believe in God's provision. But as the church, we don't need external theophany because we have the perpetual evidence of the Spirit of God living in us. That's his presence with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And what Christ said is that it's actually better that he should go and send his Spirit to be with us. So you may be sitting here thinking, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this? You say, I get, I get what you're saying. Jacob needed to be transformed. Uh, this is actually God wrestling, but I'm going to have to go look at that myself and make sure you're telling me the truth here. Um, maybe you're saying, uh, I get the parallels with Christ, but what am I supposed to do with this? So I've got four points for us to consider um, as we consider how we might respond to this passage. Number one is respond with worship. Okay, I'm the worship pastor saying that, but it's still biblical truth. Respond with worship, and this is more than just singing songs. This is a posture of gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord in every area of life. When you read through Genesis in your new Bible reading plan this year that you're going to be doing, um, look for the common redemptive thread throughout all of Genesis. Look at how God's purposes cannot be stopped, even though many of his servants were very flawed, like you and me. 
We have a great, great God. So our first response is to respond in worship. Number two, I think we can respond by being encouraged. Maybe you feel like Jacob. Maybe you read this and you say, you know, some days I have the faith that can move mountains, and some days I can't even get out of bed. Be encouraged that as God's child, he is working through you. And he'll never lead you, leave you. He will always lead you, and he will never leave you. He has plans for you that not even you can mess up, which I think is pretty amazing. God has proven over and over again that he can work through broken people, which is our third point of response. Confess our own inadequacy. Confess our own inadequacy. Own it. Look at your life. In Jacob, his whole life he'd been wrestling with God. Some days he was trusting him. Some days he was trusting himself, just going back and forth, back and forth. Again, maybe you feel like that. Maybe you've been wrestling with God. Maybe, and here's a little bit of a play on words, maybe you need to stop striving against God and strive with God in the strength that he provides as the merry gentleman, valiant and triumphant which is the fourth point of response. So let me just review real quick. Point one of response, respond in worship. Point two, respond by being encouraged that God is working through you. Number three, respond by confessing your own inadequacy to the Lord. But let's not leave it there. Respond by being strong in the Lord. Say with Paul, when I am weak, I am strong. Because I'm a child of God, redeemed in Christ, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, and a recipient of the promises of Almighty God. From this posture can real strength be found. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God. He says, finally, Ephesians 6 verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's this wrestling. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but our real enemy is the rulers and the authorities against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if we're going to wrestle with them and prevail, we need the Lord's strength. So in verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm. If we're honest, our tendency is to give ourselves way too much credit. (laughs) I do it. You probably do it. When things go wrong, we defend ourselves. When things go right, we congratulate ourselves. But what Jacob had to learn was that it was all God. All of his successes were because God was acting. God was sovereign. God was the one who was strong. And so this passage calls us to find our strength in the Lord who fights for his people, even in our culture that prizes self-sufficiency and independence. And of course, hard work is a good thing, but only after we've realized and we've learned the lesson of our own insufficiency and our need for the Lord's strength. Maybe the Lord is driving you in your life right now to a point where you can finally confess that and take up the Lord's strength. And I'll admit this, this is a fine line to walk, the interplay of God's sovereignty and um, man's responsibility. It is, it is hard um, to walk. 
but we must first come to a point where we recognize that we are utterly and totally 100% dependent on the Lord. We can't take a single breath without Him. We can't understand a single word of Scripture without the Spirit. We can't do a single good thing in the eyes of God without His help forming and working and prevailing in us and for us. See, this is what God has to do outside of ourselves. And then and only then can we be strong in the Lord's strength and of his might. Because what's cool is that Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We have to ask ourselves, did we do that? We did not triumph over Satan. We did not live the perfect life that we should have. We did not endure the cross. We did not raise from the dead. Jesus did all that. We only prevail because Christ prevails in us and through us. We only prevail because Christ prevails in us and through us. And so Jacob was delivered from this life of self-sufficiency, and he was driven to the breaking point of God-dependency. Likewise, you and I, in Christ, have been delivered from a life of self-sufficiency, and we've been given a life of Christ-dependency. Jacob is given a new name and a transformed character. In Christ, you and I are called children of God. We are led by the Holy Spirit to stand firm and to honor the Lord with our whole lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess our inadequacy. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And Lord, though we do sometimes fight tooth and nail with our own effort and we claim the victory as our own, Father, remind us, as you reminded Jacob, that we cannot do it. Victory comes only through you. Lord, help us. Thank you that you have sent your spirit to to tell us that that you are with us. You will never leave us. That, Lord, in Christ you have delivered us. That you will continue to grow us and form us into the image of Christ. Lord, help us in your strength to put on the armor of God. Help us in your might to prevail because Christ is the one who prevails in us and for us. We thank you so much just for your sovereignty over history and of your great gift of your word in this narrative in Genesis where we can see a really real and tangible way that your people, broken and flawed as they are, only ever succeed by your grace, by your providence, by your hand. And Lord, as we come to your table this morning and we feast on Christ, would you remind us this week and every week of our total need to rely on Christ and his body and his blood to redeem us, and to transform us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.